1: This is for me like the Gesamtkunstwerk. Like this is the total art. This combines like everything I've ever loved about all forms of media, whether it's collage or even fine arts. And then to convert all of that into creating sound effects. Like what an absurd art form.
2: (laughs) Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler.
3: And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn.
2: Karen I think this is the first time we've had a guest talk about Gesamtkunstwerk, the Wagnerian (laughs) term for total artwork in an interview. I can't believe we've gone years without uh, getting it. And you got it. So congratulations. Thank you. Who was it we heard at the top of the episode busting out every artist's (laughs) favorite 10 cent German word?
3: So that was Joanna Fang, a truly prolific and incredibly talented Foley artist whose work you may have heard in projects such as Dickinson, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, Promising Young Woman, The Invisible Man, and Making a Murderer, among many, many others.
2: I am totes gels that you got to talk to a foley artist i've been talking about wanting to book a foley artist forever and for whatever reason just haven't done it and you did it so curse you karen Hahn.
3: (laughs) well as you know it is my quest on this podcast to forever foil you
2: isaac yes i am well aware and our slate plus (laughs) listeners get a little something extra in their stocking this week right
3: That is correct. Uh, So for our Slate Plus segment this week, Joanne and I talk about her experience working on In the Heights and how working on a musical like that is different from working on something more realistic or something that demands more perfect sound matchups. You'll see what I mean when you listen to the segment. And we also talk about how long she tends to spend on any given project.
2: Well, I don't know why you would want to miss that, frankly. Do you, Karen?
3: I I don't know.
2: What kind of person would want to miss that? (laughs) Certainly not you, dear listener, and that's why you, if you have not already, should go and subscribe to Slate Plus, which you can do at slate.com slash working plus. Not only will you get bonus segments like that one, you'll get whole bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you will get full access to everything going on behind the paywall at Slate. That's full coverage on the site. You get a delightful newsletter, and you will be able to sleep at night knowing that you supported (laughs) what we do right here on working once again that's slate.com slash working plus please sign up today all right now let's listen in on karen's conversation with joanna fang
3: hi joanna thank you so much for coming on working
1: well i'm really happy to be here
3: I love the idea of Foley, but I don't really know that much about it. So I'm very excited to start my, I guess, Foley journey by talking to an expert because you're so prolific in the field and you've worked on so many incredible sounding projects. And I want to start with uh, Cartel Land, the documentary uh, you worked on for which you became the first openly transgender woman of color to win a primetime Emmy which is amazing. And I wanted to know primarily with that in mind, is there a difference between how you approach documentary versus like fictional narrative work? Because I feel like often thinking about documentary, I don't think that it'll need further sound, or that's what I assume when I'm watching it, but that's just not the case.
1: It's really interesting because when it comes to documentary filmmaking, you know, first and foremost. The biggest element of documentaries that I think a lot of the general public seems to forget is the fact Mm -hmm. that it's a documentary film. Mm -hmm. You know, it comes with all of the conceits and pretenses of, you know, a theatrical documentary that's been edited for uh, not just brevity, but also there's a a certain curatorial aspect to it that's been already, you know, filtered down, whether it's through camera framing or Mm -hmm. editorial, what gets chosen to be featured, what doesn't get featured, what gets onto the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. So what Foley does in the context of documentaries is that we're like the human element of the soundtrack besides dialogue we get mm-hmm. to walk characters footsteps we get to listen to props that were uh, maybe finagled with on set and then mm-hmm. try to come up with louder or more expressive versions of them so you know obviously documentaries a lot more gritty a lot more real we're focusing on an impression of reality and there's a lot less bombast but on a show like cartel land where you know, Matt Heinemann's recording a drug cartel making meth in the middle of mm-hmm. an open field, you know, it's like it's or in the middle of a gunfight, it's hard to make sure that the footsteps and props that you hear that actually occurred during filmmaking were properly recorded with sound. So a lot of documentary foley is just going in there and using our curation, using our human artistry to recreate certain sounds, maybe embellish upon them. Uh, they're already being embellished, obviously, with the with the camera angle, mm-hmm. but to just bring life back to them. So that way yeah. the, when the audience watches it feels like a film.
3: For my book on Bong Joon-ho, I talked to his sound editor, um, Chet Tae-young, whom he worked with on all of his movies. And one of the things that he talked to me about was like the difference in some movies between, quote unquote, like realistic versus, quote unquote, like Hollywood sound. And I'm curious, like, at what point you sort of decide, like, which approach is appropriate for, like, what kind of project? Because even in documentary where I feel like I would just assume it has to be more realistic, there are still kind of these levels of how exaggerated you want the sound to be.
1: The decision aesthetically about whether we go Hollywood or we go uh, or we go New York, <laughs> that's the <laughs> way I see it. Um, it. It really happens when we're watching the film and we're we're thinking to ourselves, you know, not just what the genre is, but what are the expectations and goals of the filmmaker. You know, on Cartel Land specifically, uh, we were told to make it very grounded and make it very much a human soundtrack. I've worked on quite a few documentaries, but a few of those actually did want like the bombastic impressionistic sounds for certain bombastic impressionistic moments. So... When it comes to like the Hollywood approach of creating really big, bold sounds versus like the independent film approach of creating very nuanced and subtle sounds, a lot of the times I think that that boils down to the film itself and what we're what we're feeling when we watch it, you mm-hmm. know
3: At what point did you think that Foley was something you wanted to explore, or at what point did you think like, yes, like this is the thing that I want to devote my life to?
1: I was really lucky because, you know, growing up, I was trained as a classical vocalist. I uh, was very much invested in a career in music. I actually moved to New York because I wanted to be like the next Jeff Buckley, you know. (laughs) And so at one point when I was at music school and just being depressed and like I was learning a lot, you know, but I I realized that I wanted to pursue other passions without abandoning my inherent love for music. Mm -hmm. So I was really lucky. I, I transferred to NYU Film, and this guy, David Miller, uh, may he rest in peace, um, he had all these 35 millimeter MOS uh, films, these short films that have uh, no sound. So MOS, uh, in the apocryphal stories of, of film sound, MOS stands for mit-out sound, right? So these are films that were uh, created without sound. And he asked if I'd like to come in and shoot some Foley for the project. And growing up, I'd seen so many BTS documentaries about Foley. I remember watching like Lord of the Rings behind the scenes yeah. and seeing the Foley. G- yeah. You know, it's like I was part the of that Lord generation. Of the Rings behind
3: the scenes videos are like crucial for everyone in our age range.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Those, those featurettes really, mm-hmm. really impacted my industry, especially in Foley. Because um, often that's the first time anyone knows of what Foley is and certainly was my first time. I remember when I was really little, I watched that Lord of the Rings BTS and when I saw what they were doing, you know, creating chain mail and sword <laughs> sounds like perfectly in sync with the footage and footsteps, I-, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool, but I probably suck at it because my rhythm skills aren't great. Fast forward years later in college um, when I was uh, kind of thrown on the spot, part of me was like... Foley seems really cool, but I probably suck at it because my rhythm, my my skills were more about pitch and melody and less about rhythm. And within like the first five sounds, I had this little, this, something clicked in me and um, David got on the talkback, he was recording me, David got on the talkback and was like, hey, you're really good at this. Do you want to do all of these shorts with me? And I was like, Yeah, absolutely. So we spent like the whole fall doing like five or six of these thirty-five millimeter short films and just shooting foley for them. And I I just got hooked, and um, I got super into foley. I got into this idea that it fusioned together my love for like kinetic, almost like dance-like musical performance with uh, film craft. You know, mm-hmm. I when I was a kid, I loved you know playing with my dad's camcorder and when I was in high school I used to film the football games for the local community uh tv channel and there's always this moment when you got your eye in the viewfinder when for a split second there you're not there anymore you're just this like omniscient eye that is just absorbing reality Foley does that and the musical performance element together at once. Mm -hmm. In the dark of a Foley stage, in those moments when you're fully in the character and you're walking their footsteps, you are simultaneously Bob Fosse and also this omniscient being that is just flowing through the film's uh, energy, through the actor's performances. It was intoxicating. And right after graduation, I started apprenticing for uh, Leslie Bloom at Alchemy Post Sound in, in a Peekskill, New York, Westchester County, I worked there for seven years and I just started absorbing and learning as much as I could and getting to work on some really awesome projects while I was there. But yeah, that's kind of like where, that's where I found my inspiration was really, this is for me like the Gesamtkunstwerk, like this is the total art. Yeah. This combines like everything I've ever loved about all forms of media, whether it's collage or even fine arts and you know, drawing inspiration from those processes you know, getting to understand my memories, getting to understand how things feel in my hands, and then to convert all of that into creating sound effects? Mm -hmm. Like, what an absurd art form.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely also an underappreciated art form. Um, And for the next question that I had, I wanted to ask a little bit about, I guess, the process of doing this folio work. So prior to becoming this omniscient being I imagine it sounds like you're generally brought on to projects after everything has been shot and there's kind of a, at least an initial edit in place. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so that was my first question, like when you're generally brought on to projects and then after that, what your, I guess, starting work is. Like, do you go through like a script and mark it up or is it literally a matter of watching the cut that you have and thinking from there?
1: Usually we're brought on after the film has uh, a somewhat watchable mm-hmm. version of it. We get brought on and our very first thing we do is we watch the film. You know, we watch the film and yeah, it's maybe not in a complete state, but we watch it and try to understand on the very first basis the story. As we're doing that, we're also start thinking about floor surfaces and shoes you start thinking about what are the crucial props and what are the crucial moments that might need some foley to highlight maybe if someone has like a Chekhov's gun you know like whether it be you know something like the briefcase from pulp fiction or Mm -hmm. meth in cartel land just kidding (laughs) 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 or you know if let's say a character has a particular gait, or there's a plot point where they get hit and maybe they have a limp in their right or left leg we start looking for those details as well while we're watching it. And afterwards, as a team, usually we do these watchdowns with the mixer and the editor, uh, you know, these spotting sessions, as they're called. We'll kind of compile our notes. And then a person who's called a Foley editor, he or she's going to take those all that footage, compile it into Pro Tools, and they're going to start a process called queuing, where basically they have to go target each and every place where we want footsteps for a character, we want a prop for a character. And so after that, you know, we bring those cues into pro tools or bring it into the recording uh system and the foley mixer and I will start going after uh all the cloth movement first. So we'll just record everyone's cloth, you know, front to end, usually something that covers as many people as possible. Kind of we kind of bounce around and follow Who's got the ball in the scene? You know who's got the attention of yeah. the viewer, and we'll do all their cloth sounds. So that way, if they have to re-record any dialogue during the post-production process, there is clothing sounds underneath. For the most part, you know uh, their naked voice. Mm-hmm. Then what we do is we go after footsteps. You know we start going character by character, and we we find the right shoe for that character or the right shoes. You know if you're working in a Nicole Kidman movie and she's she's wearing heels in one scene and then barefoot in the other. Or she maybe she's not supposed to be barefoot and she's supposed to be wearing heels and it's like a tight shot. So we we go after all the footsteps for all the characters and then finally we go after all the props and so that's kind of like the order of operations. And uh, once that process is done, it usually goes back to the Foley editor and then whoever they are, they'll they'll sit down and listen to everything we recorded and make sure uh, we nailed all of the notes that we initially wrote down. We nail what the director wants, and then I consider myself pretty decent at sync but you know even Usain Bolt when he hears the starting pistol at an Olympic sprint he has a 250 millisecond delay between hearing the pistol and getting off the blocks so the better how great of a Foley artist I am most human beings are around 250 milliseconds off from a reaction time so the Foley editor's job is to lock me into perfect sync and so he or she will actually take each and every footstep and each and every prop and like lock it directly to where the sounds are so I try to get as close as possible as most foliarists have want to do but they're going to be that final touch that gets us like mathematically precise then it gets sent to the mix where it gets blended with sound effects and then that gets blended with dialogue and music and you have a movie soundtrack
3: something I was curious about with regards to how you make the sounds as well is like in some cases I feel like there is a sort of one to one with like what's occurring on screen with what you're doing, for example, like footsteps, you want to have like a shoe on a surface. But I'm, I'm curious, like when you decide that it's not enough to have like exactly that object and try to go with something different or more inventive.
1: Absolutely. Um, so it, it's a pretty interesting process because it's so results oriented. Mm-hmm. So even if a character is wearing like, let's say Converse shoes and walking on concrete, you know, sometimes we'll change it up. You know, I'll maybe wear a different sneaker. If the Converse sounds too clicky and clacky, but the character's supposed to be big, heavy and intimidating, then maybe I'll just wear boots and get some nice low thump out of it. You know, uh, we're always trying to bend reality cinema And like you said, even documentary filmmaking is an attempt to corral reality into a narrative experience. So on the Foley end, you know, usually it's one-to-one insofar as like footsteps to footsteps, right? But Mm -hmm. when it comes to being creative, that kind of side of being expressive and impressionistic occurs throughout the entire process. Even when we're given exactly the right prop, like forensically the correct prop, Mm -hmm. I remember on Chaos Walking, we actually received from the costume department the literal clothing oh wow That yeah so it was like really weird to be holding like tom holland's <laughs> like like you know leather jacket from the movie but even when we use the exact thing that was on set sometimes we have to augment it and so in that case i actually i didn't just use his jacket i added another leather jacket on top of it to give it even more expressive like twist and turn and creak um but that being said when we have to go completely impressionistic, you know. It's it's often results-oriented. So something even as simple as a handshake, mm-hmm. which makes virtually no sound, IRL. I mean, but th- there's a moment of an impression that's made on, on uh, the receiver and the giver of the handshake, right? There's this immediate connection, this immediate human intimacy. And in film, almost always when you hear a handshake, it's always performed like... Like there's always this, like, skin to skin. So yeah. um, when it comes to going purely abstract, purely impressionistic, oftentimes it's when we're forced to create an over-the-top reality. So for instance, you know, working on a project like let's say Thunder Force or, or even Clifford, you know, it's, it's already way crazy to think of this massive puppy running through <laughs> New York City, right? Like it's already like too much But in those instances, it's not like I'm going to go out there and find the world's largest canine, (laughs) hunt it down. You know what I mean? So instead what happens is, uh, you know, results oriented. So we'll sit there and be like, well, you know, when I'm watching the movie, I'll kind of hear the sound in my head and Mm -hmm. be like, okay, I know what this should sound like. And I'm informed by other films and TV and YouTube and Instagram, like I'm informed by all the visual and auditory media that I have absorbed in my life. Um, and that kind of informs the the foley that I hear in my head when I just look at something. But then when it comes time to like taking that extra step, that's when we start thinking ourselves like, okay, I need to grab boxing gloves, like real heavy ones. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the floor. And even though it's supposed to be linoleum because it's this big resonant uh, apartment, maybe I'll hit wood instead to just get some more low end on it. Meanwhile my Foley mixer, you know, he'll be he'll be pitch shifting a little bit and trying to see if like oh, can we can we cheat reality even further? Can we push the tones a little further down the the frequency spectrum? And so and that's often when we have to go impressionistic. It's when reality does not match our cinematic expectations for sound is when we have to take that leap.
2: We'll be back with more of Karen's conversation with Joanna Fang after this.
4: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and
2: data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Listeners, hey, it's Isaac Butler. Uh, just wanted to give you a quick reminder to say, if you're enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcast, so you'll never miss an episode of Working. And also... I know I've said this a bunch of times, but uh, we would love to hear from you if you've got a problem, if you've got advice for us, if you've got advice you need from us, if you've got a kind of guest you'd like to hear or a segment you'd be interested in our tackling. Please just let us know at working at slate.com or call us at three zero four nine three three W.O.R.K. We love listener voicemails. And now back to Karen's conversation with Foley artist Joanna Fang.
3: I actually wanted to talk about the handshake thing that you brought up because I was reading an interview that you did with Filmmaker Magazine where you note the fact that some of the sounds that we've come to expect in movies actually don't exist, i.e. like a handshake sound doesn't really happen in real life. And I was curious if you had any other notable examples of sounds that you have to make for movies or TV or anything that don't exist in real life. Oh,
1: there's so many of them that my brain almost locks up just (laughs) thinking about it. Um, You know, bone breaks, for example, Mm. or or body punches. Like, uh, oftentimes these are collaborations with sound effects editors who are able to go access, like, hey, here's the sound of 60, you know, chicken carcasses being smacked, you know, oh. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll have some stuff that's like, like that is like completely abstract too. But on the Foley stage end of it, when we're asked to do fight scenes and stuff like that, we're, we're trying to bridge that gap between the completely utilitarian sounds that were found in, uh you know, these sound effects libraries with custom bespoke uh human sounds that kind of take that uh, uncanny valley between an SFX and, our expectation for reality, too. So when we're doing a film like, let's say, Spencer Confidential, or, you know, we're doing a film where there's, like, a lot of of fighting, um, oftentimes, you know, doing a skin pass where it's, like, the smackiest, like, the most world star hip-hop knockout punch you've ever heard. Like, it's (laughs) messed up, but when you watch real-world footage of fights, you're also listening to them, right? So it's, like, most of the times if someone gets hit really hard, um, it's really a high, bright sound, And it's not very thumpy, but if you're the person receiving the punch, it is like the most low end you'll ever feel in your life, right? Mm -hmm. So we want the audience to like feel the punch, right? So in those instances, we're, we're looking to help bridge that gap. So we'll do like a version of the classic world star hip hop, like you kind of hear that first, you hear this like Mm -hmm. bright snap and then we'll add in like a thump Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a big girl, so I have, like, a big chest cavity. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the very end, we'll do something, like, super sound effect-y, low-end sweetener of, like, and so that will be taken and then, you know, pitch shifted a little bit, and then the three of them will kind of get blended together. Mm. So with these three sounds, we could bridge the gap towards, you know, some guy in in Burbank sitting there and editing in, like... Uh, beef sides getting smacked that were recorded <laughs> from like 1986, you know, and getting those in too. Mm-hmm. So we kind of bridge that gap between these utilitarian sound effects libraries that are designed for any use case with a very specific, you know, musical performance of hits and punches, honoring what the fight choreographer did and where the emphasis and accents should be, and then performing it in real time with all these different layers to try to bridge that expectation of reality. Expectation of cinema, and to give the filmmaker and the re-recording mixers as much flexibility with how they want to go.
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And now to return to Clifford, you talked a little bit about like
3: the process of creating his footsteps, but I want to know like what other kind of tools did you employ to make the sounds of this giant red puppy?
1: Uh, Clifford was an interesting movie. This was a really big collaboration with a few Foley teams and a few sound designers. So I think the end result is a really beautiful blend of a bunch of people's efforts. So I don't want to take full credit for everything that was on that movie, uh, especially considering that, you know, my mentor, Les Bloom, was like the lead Foley artist in it. But one of the really cool things we got to do with Clifford is the fact that, you know, he scales, right? Like Clifford Mm -hmm. goes from being a small little baby puppy all the way up to the big red dog as (laughs) uh, the eponymous big red dog, right? So... Um, something, a bit of inspiration that, uh, that we drew from for Clifford, especially when, you know, they, they wake up and he's in the apartment is the fact that uh, we were watching, well, I was watching Blade Runner, uh, 2049 with some of my Foley editors and we're just having fun, you know, it was just like a good, just a chill day. And we noticed that in the opening sequence, when Dave Batista's character is this massive hunking replicant is walking through his kitchen, you can hear the plates shake. You can hear his environment kind of warping to accommodate his massive size. You can hear floorboard creaks. You know, this this he wasn't just heavy because his footsteps were low-pitched. He was heavy because he affected his environment. And so that was a very distinct sound design choice that uh, Mike Mangini and Denis valneuve and and specifically Goro Koyama, the Foley artist who did that scene, that was a decision they all made together. And so I actually called Goro and I said, so tell me what your thought process was when you created that. And he said, he said literally that like they kept trying to pitch shift it down and it wasn't it's it just every time they're saying more, heavier, mm-hmm. harder, dirtier, grittier, and it got to the point where they're like, this guy's so heavy, his weight can't just be in this resonance from his feet. This weight has to be reflected in his environment. So taking that inspiration, when we were doing scenes where Clifford wakes up in, his, in the house, we actually shook, you know, dishes and cabinets when he's walking. <laughs> No matter how much low end you add to it, no matter how much bass you add to it, it, you know, it doesn't quite work unless you hear almost like the cymbal and the snare uh, as if it were like a drum set, but almost like the cymbal and the snare of all the other things moving in his environment. So um, that was probably my favorite bit, which is understanding how to scale this character as, as he gets bigger.
3: One of the things that I was really, really excited for about this interview um, is that the work that you do is this auditory medium, and you graciously agreed to do some demo sounds for us.
1: (laughs) So I wanted to ask what you have for us today. So I have a few things. Um, It's funny because I feel like most Foley artists if they are listening to this, they'll have heard these things a million times because they're just <laughs> such staples of our mm-hmm. our biz. But um, one of my favorite things is bone breaks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, often people will talk about celery and they'll talk about, you know, like getting a whole chicken or something like that. <laughs> I got a slightly more vegan approach when it comes to it. Um, <laughs> I I like using pasta shells oh. and lasagna. So I have with me, I know the the listeners at home can't see this, but I have with me, these big old manicotti shells. And these are like, you know, the type of thing you, you do for stuffed, uh, stuffed pasta, right? Um, it's like rigatoni, but scaled up to the max, (laughs) you know, these you can often use for like, like weird crustacean creatures. Almost. I've put these on my fingers to do like bony creatures. But what I love about these is that you could wrap them. Okay. And maybe in not so vegan leather, (laughs) And, uh, or jeans, uh, if that's, if that's your vibe, I'm always trying to find alternatives that involve less suffering than using a chicken corpse. Mm -hmm. But what you do is, you know, you, you take these two manicotti shells and you wrap them in leather and you can just do this cool little, (laughs) you know, the sound of a bone collapsing. You could, you could do that. The other option is. I can take these really long lasagna pieces that I have right here mm-hmm. and take like three or four of them because so, sometimes you can't get monocotty, right? Uh, you wrap it up and uh, same deal, but maybe a little less cavernous. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, I'll even perform this without the leather so you can hear like a direct sound of it, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. know, maybe mm-hmm. for something a little bit more like small boned. I had to do a scene a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I was working on a Hulu series called Monsterland, and there's a sequence where this zombified woman's trying to walk to her grave, her actual grave. She was, like, dug up. Mm -hmm. um, And her ankle's, like, a little messed up. Her body's, like, starting to rot. And we just had to do the sound of, like, you know, as she walks over. Um, It's so
3: funny. Like, I'm watching you break
1: pasta, and yet when I hear the sound, I I still have the reaction of, like, ugh you know it's funny it's like it's all about context right? yeah um and then with that same sequence you know we might have to add some sort of like flesh sound mm-hmm. this part is definitely not vegan but at <laughs> least the suffering isn't that bad um we have what's called a chamois cloth and mm-hmm. basically you know i say chamois, people think sham but before the <laughs> sham wow uh you know they have this thing of chamois where it's basically preserved sheepskin so definitely mm. not uh vegan um but we have this preserved sheepskin, which has been cured in like fish oils and tannins and all these things. Um, mm-hmm. So it has, you know, this consistency of like flesh, and you could have it on a fully stage for months, even years, if you preserve it right. Yeah. Um, but but basically, this this one, mm, this one piece of preserved sheepskin. Can do so much. Yeah. Um, I think of it as the sound of feasting, fighting, and fucking. Um, <laughs> you can do just the grossest sound of food, like being scooped out of a plate. You know, you can do. Yeah. And then sometimes when we have to do, in the case of like that zombie sequence, we have to do someone's flesh getting ripped. It's Ooh. like, you just can kind of get some distance on it. You go like, oh. like someone gets punched in the face <laughs> and there's blood. It's like. Oh, (laughs) this thing it's so funny it ruins all my t-shirts when i do it because it (laughs) smells awful and i get these little like flicks of it it's fine it's (laughs) part of the gig my friends are always like why don't you you used to wear so many like cute little black dresses i'm like i i work on a foley stage i'm like playing in dirt and mud and blood (laughs) all day um and then like, you know, unfortunately the more obscene like f-bomb, you know, like fucking, like sometimes we'll use these to get the sound of like just wet flesh. Mhm. So <laughs> a little obscene, but like w- between having to do everything from action films to comedies to outrageous pieces to, yeah. you know, and now my my most recent work is in video games, mm-hmm. you know, combining all these techniques to create a tapestry of sounds. Um, I'm, I'm honestly convinced that the Foley artist who figured out that the chamois is like this complete package Foley prop was probably whoever figured it out first probably had a summer job as a, at a car wash, you know, like whoever that person was is probably sitting there being like, oh, I have to do the sound of like, like someone's like guts falling out. Mm -hmm. And they probably sat there and they're just like remembering that summer job in the Mm -hmm. summer of 73 (laughs) and just was like, I got to go get that chamois cloth because it sounded like so silly. Um, But, you know, we're pulling from our life experience. Yeah. You know, and that's what, uh, besides pulling from our vocabulary of cinema sound, a lot of Foley artists, we are lucky in that we take whatever we learned from our lives and have an opportunity to reapply. Like any good artist, Uh, does to reapply these things to our art and so you know i know what it's like walking down the streets at like 3 a.m in high heels and feeling afraid for your life Mm -hmm. you know and how do i translate that into foley Uh, maybe it's a way of coping with trauma but like (laughs) (laughs) we find these ways to take these these very impressionistic and memorable sounds that we hear in our day-to-day lives yeah and we try to find a way to express them and create a new sound language so that way when the listener listens to them, whether it's the crack of pasta or the slap of a chamois or the clack of a heel, that they're able to hear it and in that moment experience the sound as if they were in the film or game or podcast itself. you so so
3: much for taking us on this journey into the world of Foley and into your passion for this art um, I so appreciate your incredibly thoughtful answers and also your uh, demo for
1: us thank you so much for coming on the show Joanna of course and uh, thank you for having me
2: Wow. Karen, that interview did not disappoint. I am still totes gels. But before (laughs) we get to the meat of it, I loved how Joanna has adopted almost like a, it's almost like a spiritual practice in her work. You know, when she was talking about the omniscient uh, point of view, you know, she clearly loves and feels deeply, deeply fulfilled by what she's doing, even though it's not what she set out to do when she moved to New York. And it made me think about how, you know, maybe we tend to take for granted how important loving the creative act is to the creative process, particularly when you're in a job like below the line folks in film and television where the overall quality of the project is totally out of your control, right? Like I doubt every movie Joanna's worked on is one she thinks is a good movie, but she still tried to do the best she could do within it. Uh, I always find it a little weird when like writers talk about how much they hate writing. Writing is hard. It's not that remunerative for most of us. You know, why are you doing it if you hate it so much? Am I crazy?
3: Well, crazy in a good way, but not crazy for this particular sentiment. There's Um, other reasons why I'm crazy. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But sort of as you're saying, it was really refreshing for me to hear Joanna talk about how much she loves her work, because as you're saying, I think it's really easy to sometimes get lost in the more kind of quotidian or dull parts of the work that we do. For instance, like working as a staff writer for a publication, a lot of the work that I did for some of my jobs was just like writing up trailers. And I don't like love doing that. That's not my passion um but whose fashion
2: is that who gets up in the morning (laughs) and is like you know what i'm gonna do today i'm gonna write about the new thor trailer
3: I mean, if there's something really cool in there, maybe. But most of the time, it is just, please click on this so that our site can get more page views and we get more ad money. Yeah. And sometimes writing like really is a slog. It's really hard. Like We've talked about writer's block so much on this podcast. And when you have that kind of creative block, it's like, I hate doing this. This sucks. Why am I doing it? But at the same time, I feel like at the end of the day, the emotion that you feel when you think about the craft that you're practicing should be love or some kind of excitement. Like you should really like doing it at the end of the day like there's no job in the world that you will always be happy doing yeah but the key is you should still enjoy the craft I keep saying at the end of the day but you know what I mean
2: absolutely yes if you're hating it more than you love it maybe it's Mm -hmm. not actually the right I don't know thing for you to be doing
3: yeah or at least time to take a step back and sort of reassess your relationship with the work
2: Yes, it could be how you're doing it, not the mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. the work itself, for sure. I was really fascinated by the discussion at the beginning of Foley in documentary film, which is, you are right, not something I've ever thought about, actually, mm-hmm. because you think like, ah, oh, it's a documentary. Everything is, you know, real. It's just it's <laughs> reality, man. And so there's a part of me. That felt a little challenged by that. You know, when you started talking about it, I was like, wait, you shouldn't sweeten the sound effects in a doc. What are you doing? You can't clink the silverware to make the <laughs> silverware clinking sound. That's dishonest. But, you know, obviously, I'm a creative nonfiction writer myself. And I, I know that no matter what, when you tell a true story, you're still constructing reality. I, I don't know. What did you make of that's part of your own interview?
3: Well, I honestly think that you've already kind of gotten to the meat of it, which is that no matter what your intentions may be, when you're making a piece of art, it's going to be subjective no matter what you do. It's still conveying a certain point of view. And in the case of a documentary where it's still like is... A specific art form, it's still a movie. The filmmakers are already crafting a story. They're already crafting a narrative arc for the subject or for the topic, I guess. And sound is a part of that. And I think it's also worth noting this is something that I think is maybe a little more, um, I guess, granular. But if, unless you're being really, really invasive with your subjects and the people around them, you're probably not gonna get the kind of sound that is at all good or like useful to listen to it's going to sound bad if there isn't some kind of massaging involved with it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that is one thing that's worth driving home is, you know, microphone technology has mm-hmm. come a very, 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 very long way since uh, sync sound was invented in 1927, mm-hmm. but it's still not like you can have a microphone over the heads of people and yeah. get a really well recorded stuff with their hands. I mean, you know, you, you, you do still have to mic things in a really, really particular way to get those clean, crisp sound effects that people expect.
3: Yeah, I mean, you can even just sort of tell, like, when you record a video with your phone, you're getting so much ambient noise when you, like, watch it back. It's not going to be the kind of sound that you want for a movie.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally, of course. And, you know... I think one of the reasons why you and I both wanted to interview Foley artists is it does seem like a really fun job. And part of that fun is just how physical it is. You know, you're leaping around, you're, you're walking with your feet in the shoes on different surfaces to make the footsteps. It it just feels more physical than what we do. You know, I mean, I guess writing is a little physical, you know, it's in our fingers or it's in our hands on the pen. But I kind of wish that it could be more so, you know, it just seems like so much fun that you could involve your body somehow. Is there, is there any way that we could be doing that?
3: I think there's some ways like on a kind of micro level and to that end I almost wish that we could like bring June in for an expert segment since she's our resident pen and stationery lover and I I think it's sometimes helpful to like change writing mediums in that way like I have friends who've bought typewriters um, for this kind of purpose friends who use a lot of index cards or sticky notes or special apps on your computer that will just change the sense that you have while you're writing. There are more ways to change up the sensation of writing than we think, but I think we mostly don't do those because it does take kind of more effort than you'd want to or like some kind of outside investment. Um, That said, maybe the biggest physical change that you can make in terms of writing is to try to join a writing group or try to work with a friend for an hour or two because in that case, you have to express your ideas out loud or at least not just to yourself or just in the document that you're working on, which will sometimes help give you... a better sense of clarity or at least kind of make it more fun for a little bit.
2: Yeah. You know, my most bizarre instance of of trying to help someone with, you know, adding a physical quality to their process was I helped a friend Jerry rig a treadmill desk.
3: Oh, wow. Yeah. He just
2: bought a cheap treadmill on Craigslist and we carried it up to his office and then <laughs> he, we like screwed a wooden plank into, you know, the bars you hold on on a uh-huh, treadmill. Uh-huh. And then he would put his computer on that and he would walk while writing that was his way of you know getting a little exercise and making writing more physical
3: that's a good diy project oh I, I hope like that, it, right? i hope it was safe
2: well he's still alive so okay. at least there's at least there's that <laughs> I got to say, maybe the most mind-blowing part of this for me was the conversation about the handshake. (laughs) Because I had never thought about the fact that in the real world, handshakes don't make a sound. And if you like put your hands together and shake them, you could see. I mean, there's a tactile feel, Mm -hmm. but what the sound is doing is actually translating the sense of touch. Mm Mm-hmm into the sense of sound so that you can sort of appreciate it and feel it. And so you need the sound of a handshake so it'll feel real to the audience. And so we've developed as a culture, a convention of what a handshake sounds like. And Mm -hmm. I just loved her approach to convention. And I thought that's something that really carries beyond the realm of Foley art because every art form has its conventions. And I think sometimes we can get all tied up with, oh, I don't want to do anything conventional or no formulas or no tropes or whatever. And her attitude towards it was so healthy, which is these conventions exist. They exist for a reason. The audience is going to have certain expectations in these moments and you can decide whether to honor those expectations or not, but you at least have to know That they're there. You're working in a bunch of different forms, all of which have different conventions, whether it's, you know, scripted television or your book on Bong Joon-ho or or shorter works of criticism. And I'm just wondering how you feel about how the conventions work in those different forms and if you're, you know, trying to learn them and use them or, or what?
3: I like to think that I have a a similar relationship to those conventions as Joanna does where it's useful to know that they exist and how they can help you if you need some kind of structure to start with. But at the same time, I don't think you have to consider them kind of life or death rules that you have to adhere to. For instance, like when you're writing a review, you generally want to start with a sort of thesis, like here's my general opinion on the movie and then you expound on it in the later paragraphs. But at the same time, if you had a really, really sharp and personal connection to this movie or some really, really interesting story that isn't necessarily about whether you thought it was good or bad. Maybe you want to start by telling that story and grabbing the reader's attention that way. Ultimately, these are just guidelines and how you should perceive them is sort of the same in any art form. It's good to know them and have a sense of history, the medium, but at the same time, you shouldn't be afraid to experiment or do something different if you think that's better for what you're working on. Like, there's so many different schools when you look at painting, like you have Van Gogh and then you have Pollock, they're both painters, but they're doing different things with the same form. And it's not that one is right or one is wrong.
2: Right, totally. And it can also depend on what medium you're working in or even what outlet you're working in, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, if you're writing a profile for The New Yorker, there's a good chance that you're going to begin, you know, at nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning. Isaac Bunner sat <laughs> down with a cup of coffee and whatever, right? You know, because you they want to situate you in the place. And a lot of times if it's a feature at Slate, you know, you have this intro that ends with sort of what is the burning question that the rest of the piece is going to address. Dan Coist did this recently with his OXO Good Grips one. But you know it, it's worth saying that those conventions also you know they exist for a reason, like they work, they do mm-hmm. something and 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 so they can be really useful,
3: yeah, absolutely. I think it's but I think at the same time, like sometimes conventions can sort of become outdated like a, a thing totally. that gets talked about a lot in terms of story writing is like you need to have three acts in it. and it's like, yeah, like that's helpful when you have no idea how you want to structure a story, but at the same time, it's really limiting in some ways.
2: Yeah. I love your point that a lot of this stuff is really useful if you're stuck,
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: you know, or you don't know how to begin or whatever. It's like, well, let's just take some rules. There are some rules that exist. Let's borrow yeah. those and try those and see how I feel about it. And then once you've taken a stab at it, you can start going, oh, no, never mind. I want to disregard this
3: Yeah, or yeah, that,
2: or, or whatever. And similarly... They can be really helpful for revision because it, whether it's mm-hmm. a painting or a sound effect or whatever, because you can be like, oh, something's not working here. It's like, well, why don't I try it in a three act structure and see what that reveals? You know, just because you're taking a stab at something doesn't mean it's the final version.
3: Yeah, absolutely. There's always room to change stuff if you don't like where it's going, unless the book is already out, in which case, well, that's that. Then,
2: isn't it? I know. I mean, you know, you reach that point where they're like, by the way, this is the last round of changes. And you're like, oh, no, now oh, now it's really all locked in. (sighs) And of course though, this episode is about Foley so to talk Mm. about Foley again you know, it's amazing to me how much work goes into the sounds of physical violence that, you know, it it actually did not occur to me having never broken a bone before, but of course bones breaking don't make a sound because they're like muffled by all the, you know, skin and muscle and whatnot. Um, My wife and I have recently been watching a lot of Jackie Chan movies because she had never Mm -hmm. seen a Jackie Chan movie before. And she was like, I feel like this is a hole in my cinematic knowledge. And it's really interesting in the eighties that every punch and kick has the same sound.
3: Yeah, right? it's like the same like kind of quack sound. Yeah. Whoops, 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 yeah. Right?
2: And now it's like each one of those would have a lovingly created bespoke, <laughs> you know, it would you would take the file sound effect and then, you know, maybe Joanna would punch herself in the chest and then you would loop those things and then mm-hmm. you know, it's just it's fascinating how uh, far the field has come and how much you can tell that through action cinema
3: yeah absolutely i actually what i'm gonna answer with is a total segue but i was just Do thinking it. like for my book on bong joon ho um i think i brought this up in the interview like i talked to his sound editor um chet Young, and he was talking about like making the sound effects for the different creatures that bong joon ho has had mm-hmm. in his movies and it's so fun this is just plugging my book, I guess, but it was really fun to listen to him talking about like combining different animal sounds and even getting like an actor into the studio to portray like more emotional moments. When Bong was like, "I really want it to be as if the creature is saying X," and then they got an actor to come into the studio and try to make noises with more emotions because you can't go up to an animal in the field and be like, "Can you give me a squeal but like really upset?" Like it, right, right. it doesn't work that way with animals.
2: Or, or the monster from the host. I mean, they have those just at the Baltimore Aquarium. I mean, you could be like, excuse me, <laughs> Mr. Monster from the host, could you please eat a child for me? Or, you
3: know, exactly. Whatever.
2: Well, that's all the time we have for our show this week. If you've enjoyed the show, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And here is one final Slate Plus pitch for you. If you go... Slate.com slash working plus right now and subscribe. You get access to bonus segments on shows like this one, full episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you get to read everything on Slate's site, even the stuff that's behind the paywall. Go to slate.com slash working plus today to sign up.
3: Special thanks to Joanna Fang for being our guest this week and to our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Isa's conversation with Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, the creators and showrunners of HBO Max's hit comedy, The Other Two, which I love. I can't wait to listen to the episode. And until then, get back to work.